0: The following program was a recording of a live streaming event held on March 11th at the Washington Cracker Building by local storytelling group Pivot. To find out about future events, go to pivotspokane.com. First live Pivot event in over a year! Uh, it's good to be back. and We look forward to more events in the near future. In fact, I was just talking to a board member before the event. We're just trying to figure out how can we do something like this or even better in person outside by the end of May, early June. Uh, we'll see what we can do. Uh, in lieu of live events in the last year, we held two uh, video uh, contests. If you'd like to watch those, you can go to the Pivot Spokane YouTube channel, and they're there. In fact, one of our storytellers tonight uh, was uh, a winner of our storytelling contest. We are here tonight at the Cracker Building, where we've held every one of our 12 events since our first event on February sixteenth, 2017. So, yeah, yeah. That's really, it's, it's exciting to think that uh, we just sort of started this thing and said, let's see what happens. And over four years later, here we are, and we have uh, our board members in the audience, and we have our storytellers in the audience, and uh, hopefully soon we have you in the audience. Uh, I'd like to thank a few people before we start. I'd like to thank Darby McKee and Jackie Caro, who helped us get this cracker building uh, for a really low cost, and it's really become our home, so let's give them a hand for what they've done. I'd like to thank Luis and Norman from the Palimpsest Group, who are making it possible for us to live stream to you that makes it look so good and sounds so good. Um, I would like to thank our board. We have Mark Robbins, Morgan Marum, J- Josh Armstrong, Karen Woodard, and Daniel Walters. Let's give them a hand. And most importantly, the reason we're here, and really we wouldn't be an organization without them, are storytellers, Susie Labar, Ella Kerner, Sherry Miller, and Ross Carper. Uh, I know sometimes that at these events, you know, we, we talk about some some depths of some things. So if as, as people are talking about things that might bring up some tough situations for you, um, I'm a psychology teacher, so I bring this up a lot too. Uh, there is a crisis line, 741-741. You can text 24-7, and uh, it, professionals will talk to you. So if you ever have any problems tonight or any other night, I wanted to make sure people know that that is available, 741-741. And as I mentioned, the following stories cover difficult topics. Uh, This is not a night of sadness, though. This is a night of hope. Our storytellers definitely reach the depths of human experience, but these are inspirational tales of resilience and the indomitability of the human spirit. Our theme tonight is Out of the Ashes, and our storytellers have definitely had their lives almost burned to the ground. But our storytellers have overcome, dusted off the ashes, and prevailed. Let's emphasize that. All right, so let's begin. Our first storyteller is Susie Labar. She's been working recent life events, very, very recent life events, like a week ago life events, into her story, and has crafted a wonderful story of forgiveness. And I promise you'll likely never look at a snowman the same way again. Let's welcome Susie Labar.
1: And I'll, I'll just, um, just like we're in the, there, we're not at the Cracker Barrel, we're at the Cracker Building, yeah. but it's um, Love Air like barrel without La an Baire. L. And All that's right. okay. I just wanted to honor my husband in that name. So, um, so again, thank you for this opportunity. Um, I'd started running again. The year was 2003, and I'd signed up for a race that I wanted to do, and I needed to get a run in, but I also needed to blow off some steam. You see, my husband and I had not been in a good place. We'd been fighting a lot, and we had two young children who were 19 months apart. We had twins the stupid way. and. Um, and I, I needed to get a run in, and generally I would take my boys in the double-jog stroller, and we would go to a place that was behind the Numerica Credit Union on 29th Avenue that was just a piece of land that they had coined the Bumpy Park because they loved to go over the rocks and and explore the woods and, and walk by the hill that they would sled down in the wintertime. But this time I decided to go by myself, because I needed to blow off some steam, and I knew running was the thing that helped me. And as I went out, I ended up at the bumpy park, and, and it had snowed, and I found myself making three balls of snow, and it was really wet, and damp, and cold, and heavy, and And as I made each one and lifted it up, stacked them one on top of the other, I smoothed out the edges, and I added the final details. And I realized at that moment that I wasn't making this snowman for other people to enjoy. I was making this snowman to destroy it. And so I backed up about 20 feet, and I charged at that snowman, and I kicked, and I knocked down each one of those balls. And I stomped, and I raged, and I screamed, and with every time I hit the ground, feeling like I didn't have a voice, and if I did, I felt like I wasn't being heard feeling like my life was spinning out of control, and I was afraid for losing this family that I had just started. Because you see, in 2001, I found myself sleeping on the floor of my child's bedroom, because if he cried out, I needed to respond. Because if I didn't, then I would be that adult that wasn't responding to the needs of a child who might be in pain or hurting or suffering. And we all know what that does when you have young children and a toddler and an infant. Sleep you need. And we ended up in counseling, and and we did a lot of hard work. I did a lot of hard work. And... When we started couples counseling, the counselor asked asked why, why didn't you check this box? And the box was that I had been sexually abused as a child myself for years, along with being a child of divorce and bankruptcy and having a parent who was alcoholic and moving at the age of 12 to Alaska, and my dad to New York. But the thing that was hardest was sexual abuse is a boundary violation that's extremely hard to overcome. I don't know if that's the right word, but to, to manage. and But we did a lot of good work, and we were in a good place. And 2012, the Penn State allegations happened. 2016 The gymnast came forward and started again talking about more and more and hundreds of girls coming out and the Me Too movement getting traction and and 2018 Kavanaugh hearings coming about and in those triggers <laughs> keeps Triggering my body, and your body only knows what's happening right now, and it was thinking. And so I was going into fight, flight, freeze. I was responding when it in ways that most people wouldn't be. And and I had thought that my <laughs> thought I was having early stages of dementia. My memory was not where it was, and I went and saw a doctor, and she said, There is nothing wrong with your memory, and you are suffering from PTSD. And I recommend that you do EMDR, and I began doing that work. And at the same time, the Kavanaugh hearings were happening, I was struggling. I was driving home from work, and my dad called and said, I need to talk to you. And I said, I'm driving home. Can I call you back? And he said, I need to talk to you now. Can you pull over? And so I pulled over into a gas station. And my dad said, I've just spent this day listening to Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. And I want to tell you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I didn't do more to protect you, and to help you. And at that moment, when you've experienced something like that, you sometimes wonder, did it really happen? (laughs) And at that moment, it was validating that it did. It was validating in the sense that here's an adult now saying, I wish I had done more. And I know that as adults, we do the best we can because I know that I'm sure I've been an adult that didn't respond when needed. But this began this healing process for my dad and I. And we had started to get to a good place and really setting up some boundaries. Not saying it was easy, but we were, it was a healing. It was a healing time. I ended up having to leave my job because I was getting triggered too much and and began doing the work. And in January of this year, I found myself sitting in the ER waiting room with my 84-year-old father. And his health had declined since Thanksgiving. And and he was in a lot of pain. And we were in six hours in this waiting room. And so what is my dad loves to just find out things. He would leave newspaper articles on my counter, and he would tell me stories that he'd heard on the news. And so we talked about those things, and we talked about what was happening, and we'd get up and walk around, and at one moment, he goes, so, have you heard the new Taylor Swift album? (laughs) And I was like, what was that, Dad? And he said, have you heard the new Taylor Swift album Evermore? And I said, yeah, yeah, I have. And and uh, he says, I was wondering if we could listen to the song Evermore. And for whatever reason, I had thrown my earbuds in. And so I put one in his left ear and one in my right ear. And we start listening. My dad's hard of hearing, and I was anticipating this would happen. I I can't hear the words, can you pull up the lyrics? So we pull up the lyrics, so we're listening to the song and we're reading these lyrics, and there's a line in there where she talks about, will this pain be forevermore? And my dad is in intense pain. And he ends up in the hospital, and with COVID you can't, you can't go to the hospital, so I clung to that song, and I would wake up, and I would listen to it over and over and over, and I would say, have I told you the story about the Evermore? And my kids are like, mom, you've told me that story a million times. But I just, this song, I just clung to it. And as I listened to it, I realized at the end of the song,
2: she says, this pain wouldn't be forevermore. And for my dad, Two weeks later, he had passed. And,
1: and I was reeling from that and realizing my own pain. And one of the things I had started to do was mindfulness, and I had just done a training that was that was really heavy. And I found myself on a walk again and I headed to the bumpy park. (laughs) And as I got closer, I could hear laughter. And as I walked into the woods, I saw a young family sledding down the hill and remnants of memories flooding back. And I said how we had loved going there, and my boys had called it the bumpy park. And they said, Oh, we call it the deep dark woods. And the little boy said, What are, what are you doing? And I said, Oh, I'm, I'm going on a much needed walk. And how I had wished I'd brought a sled.
2: And his older sister piped up and said, We have three. <laughs>
1: And so I found myself climbing the hill again and going down the runs, laughing, and just this sheer joy of being in the moment. And as I walked away and said goodbye and rounded the corner, I found myself in the spot where I had made that snowman so many years before.
2: And I began rolling the snow and building one ball on top of the other. And I added details, and I left the imperfections. I didn't smooth the edges. And I stood back about 20 feet, smiling, with the sun on my face, and hearing the laughter in the distance and I
1: turned and walked
0: away. Thank you. You're listening to KYRS, Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine, at one zero one one South Perry Street and online at South Perry Art Hour relies on support from listeners like you. Just three dollars a month helps keep KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting Give KYRS to four four three two one. That's all one word. Give KYRS to four four three two one. Art Hour receives support
2: from Saga. The Spokane Arts Grant Award. Information online at spokanearts.org.
0: Thank you, Susie. Uh, I'm always honored that people are willing to come here and tell their stories like that. And it's just such a fresh story, and the fact that Susie's willing to share it with us, and the fact that all of our storytellers are willing to share it with us. um, I find it inspiring, and that's why we do what we do. So thank you. Our second storyteller is Ella Kerner. She was a winner in our video contest that we had in the spring of last year when we couldn't hold our events. And you'll see why she was a winner when she tells this new story. And you can go and uh, watch her old entry on our YouTube channel. And you can listen to her new entry right here Ella Kerner.
3: All I can remember are little flashes. I'm sitting on the sidewalk holding my legs and I look up and see my friends who've been in the front seat. And they say, are you okay? I say, yeah, I'm okay, are you okay? And then I'm getting put on a backboard and then I'm in the back of an ambulance and then I realize that I must have been in a car accident and the paramedic is asking me questions. He says, what's your name? I say, Ella. He says, okay, Ella, what's your birthday? And I say, spring um, March 88, March 11th, 1988. And then he says, have you had anything to eat today? And I say, I know I had wine for lunch. And do you remember anything else from the day? Oh, I know I went to church. And do you remember anything from last week? And I say, I think my husband is cheating on me. He told me that he'd made a drunken mistake, and it hurt so much, but I knew he drank too much. Like, we knew, and we hadn't dealt with it, and it felt like now it was time to take control, and we'd get through it. And then I found out that his confession was heavily edited, and that he only told me because he got caught. And if he's hiding that, what else is he hiding? And then five years of memories are just unraveling and all these little flashes are coming up. Like he told me that he was going out to drink with some coworkers, And he told me that he was helping a friend with their business. And he told me that he needed to crash on a friend's couch because he had drank too much and shouldn't drive home. And I never asked who he was texting or talking to online. But if I had, what would he have told me? So yeah, there was a drinking problem, (laughs) but when he called a few days later with another confession, and this time it was for something that happened a year and a half ago, he'd been hiding it all that time, and he tells me at the end of the phone call, that's it, I promise there's no more, and I hang up and I knew there was more. So yeah, a drinking problem, but also a cheating problem and a lying problem. And if you ask me, that's too many fucking problems. (laughs) And I don't know what to do. I go to a friend for help because I know her husband cheated on her and it sucked, but they are still married. So I know she can tell me, how do I get him to tell the truth and come clean and we can move forward? And I look her in the eyes and say, what should I do? And she says, leave. Leave? I am 25 years old, right? Like, I have sunk over half a decade into this marriage. I need a different option, a new approach. I don't actually know what I need, but I need a break from this awful week. So, on Sunday after church, I get in the back of a friend's car and we head out of town. I know there will be a hot tub and there will be sympathetic ears, and I can get some space and figure out what to do with my life. And then wham at the drunk driver is going 45 in a 25 and he hits us in the back of the car where I'm sitting and just crumples. The car flips and we land on the roof. My friends turn around and see me and I'm hanging from my seatbelt upside down and there's blood everywhere and they think I'm dead. But I move and we manage to get out of the car. And meanwhile, the drunk driver tries to drive away, but he's stopped by witnesses. But I don't actually remember any of that. (laughs) All I remember is sitting on the sidewalk. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Backboard. Ambulance. What's your birthday? And now I'm in the ER. And I don't know if it's like the absurdity of the situation or the concussion, but everything in the ER is really funny. The doctor tells me I need a CT scan, oh great, and it turns out that I've cracked my skull right beneath my left eye socket, and I'm just like, oh, it's my first broken bone, it's my face, <laughs> that's great. And then the doctor comes in with a little napkins, put over my face, he's gonna do the stitches, and I'm just glad he's finally there because every time I've smiled in the hospital, the wound has reopened and more blood has come down onto my shirt, my white shirt, which is garbage now, just like the rest of my life. (laughs) And then it's really funny when the doctor comes and gives discharge instructions to my sister, and he says, make sure you bring her back if it's hard to wake her up. That's bad. (laughs) But like the cherry on top for me, the best part of the whole day is the paramedic who treated me in the ER comes into the hospital room, like to check on me, so sweet. And he comes and takes my hand and looks me in the eye, and he says, It sounds like your husband is a real bastard. (sighs) (sighs) Yeah, couldn't agree more. Unfortunately, the giggles wear off, and the next day I wake up to just, like, the shitty remnants of my life and a headache and a choice that I don't want to make. And I'm just stuck. I'm frozen by the unfairness of it all until one day I'm praying, if you can count screaming at God in the car, praying. And I'm just saying, I don't want to do this. And God says back, No one does. Oh, right. No one wants to get divorced. Like I've been agonizing over this choice, but it's not my choice that my marriage is ending any more than it was my choice to get hit by a car. This stuff is just happening to me that week a friend sends me a picture it's a scene that she stumbled across on a walk a little baby bird had fallen from its nest and it's lying on the sidewalk wings outstretched dead and dry and she says i found your spirit animal (laughs) and that's me all summer just laid out As paperwork is filed and things move forward, finally, like, the dust settles and I find myself just grasping for some kind of closure. And that's why I'm sitting at Huckleberry's Natural Market at this tiny table across from my ex-husband. And it's also why I'm in the courtroom at the sentencing for the drunk driver. Although there, I'm also hoping for a little bit of revenge. I've been invited to read a victim impact statement. You see, there's already been a plea deal reached, and it's pretty lenient, but I've been told the judge will take what I have to say into account before she makes her final decision. So I tell the court, this guy almost killed me, and I might have been lucky and walked away with my life, but I will always be at an increased risk for brain injury because of what he did. At Huckleberry's, I don't have that much to say to my husband because he knows what he did, and there's no judge to sway here. But he has a lot to tell me. It turns out he didn't want to get divorced any more than I did, which sounds a little crazy, but as much as he was doing things that he knew would hurt me, he was hiding them for a reason. And now, you know, his whole life has fallen apart, and he's had to move out of our apartment and with his family. He's trying to finish school. He's trying to stay sober. And he doesn't say it, but we both know that I won custody of almost all of our friends in this divorce. And I just, I can't help but think of our friends and how much I've leaned on them. You know, they've been there to hold my hand when I cried and hold my hair when I barfed from drinking too much, even when it ended up all over their shoes. And they've come to appointments to get my stitches out. And there's even a friend here right with me in the courtroom when it's the defense attorney's turn to talk. And she tells us about the defendant and how his life has been going. He knows now that he's an alcoholic and he's part of um, a treatment program in his probation terms. He's just trying to hold down a job and take care of his young daughter and he wishes none of it had ever happened. And God damn it, I just want to be mad at him. I want to feel some of that self-righteous anger that I've been taking hits off all summer. But when I look at him in the courtroom, he can't even look back. I just feel pity. And at Huckleberry's, across this tiny table from the man who managed to up his own life somehow worse than mine, (laughs) I just feel pity and a lot of relief because all the problems that he's talking about are just not my problems anymore. (laughs) I don't have to help him get sober. I don't have to support him while he puts his life back together. I don't even have to deal with any of the little stuff that was wrong with our marriage before the big stuff came out. I'm not his wife anymore. I can just leave. So I offer my ex-husband the only thing I could possibly owe him, my forgiveness, and I walk away out of the huckleberries and out of the courthouse And for the first time I feel it, I'm not the dead baby bird. I got kicked out of my nest, and my old life is totaled, and I'm on a path that I did not get to choose. But I can see now the path is leading to a place where I'm going to be okay. I'm alive. So I unbuckle my seatbelt, and I crawl out of the wreckage. And with my friend's help, I stand up, and I stretch my bruised and stitched-up wings, and I take flight
0: did anybody notice an interesting detail of that story that her birthday is March 11th yeah so happy birthday Ella, and thank you thank you Thank you for sharing your birthday with us. Uh, that's wonderful. As like, I had to check today's March 11th. Wow, that's really cool. Uh, OK, great story. Funny, uh, touching, same way your previous story was. Thank you. Um, our next storyteller is Sherry Miller, and I would say of all the four stories tonight, this one might be the most closely aligned with our theme of "Out of the Ashes." So please welcome to our stage, Sherry Miller.
4: When I was in the fourth grade, a classmate was killed in a trailer fire. Killed all five of the siblings. It was
2: around that same time that my mom got
4: remarried, and her new husband had a particular affinity for door-to-door salesmen. That's how we got our Neekin water system. That's how we got our Kirby vacuum, swiftly followed by the rainbow vacuum, much better. And that's also how we got the smoke detectors for my mom's house. And we didn't just get smoke detectors, we got heat detectors. And if you didn't know, heat detectors are a round device that goes on the ceiling next to the smoke detectors of coiled metal, and when the sensor melts and pops off, it clangs like a school bell. I didn't know you could melt to death in a fire. I knew you could smother from the smoke, but melting was a new thing to me. I used to lay awake and count the blinks on the smoke detector to make sure there were 60 seconds in between each one and plan escape routes in my head. I turned 40 last year and I'm just now realizing I might have a little bit of an issue with anxiety. <laughs> but I always knew the power of fire. My mom worked for DNR growing up at the Department of Natural Resources. She was on the summer fire cruise and I knew about PBY planes and bucket drops, I knew about shake and bake bags, and I knew... Fire could just destroy. It could run up a mountain. It could sweep across a plain. It could jump a highway. Fire could also destroy a two-story home in just a matter of minutes with the lives inside. I've always respected fire, and I've always known that it was a powerful key in my life. My dad was killed in house fire just a few weeks before my 30th birthday. took me a minute to come to terms with that fire is really powerful it takes away from you but it also gives to you save your pennies kid we're doing vegas for 30 that's what my dad had always said we didn't get to do vegas for 30 instead his life insurance and his house insurance and his car insurance and all the insurances paid out and i was able to go to vegas with friends very very dear friends that were there for me in that time We went to Vegas in honor of my dad. And then ten years later, they were there for me again on my 40th birthday during a pandemic, during wildfires. We had a rooftop picnic on a patio in Seattle. Fire took away from me, but it also gave back to me. Fire has a sense of humor. When my dad's house burned down, it was like the finger of God reached down and touched the earth. There was nothing left. A two-story home was completely gone. There wasn't a beam, there wasn't a post, there wasn't a support. There was nothing left. Except for the John Denver records. The John Denver records had been my dad's, but my mom had kept them in the divorce. She kept them for 18 years, until wife number two became wife number three. And then my dad got the records back. And the only thing to survive the fire was this lump of melted vinyl and wet cardboard, the John Denver records. Growing up, after my folks split, it was a parental exchange of spring break and summer vacations. It was a -a two-and-a-half-hour car car ride to the middle point. So twice a year, my older brother and I would get to go on a -a two-and-a-half-hour car ride with my dad. And he would always whistle or sing John Denver songs. It was... Take me home country roads and grandma's feather bed and thank God I'm a country boy. And To this day, I can still tell you that grandma's feather bed is nine feet high, six feet wide, and soft as a downy chick. When my older brother was old enough and we used to do the car trips by ourselves, we would sing John Denver
2: songs. When my kids were growing up and we would go on car trips, we would sing John Denver songs. John Denver survived the fire. It's got a wicked sense of humor. Twisted as crazy straw and dark
4: as Pantone
0: 190303.
4: In August of 2010, my dad died. In October of 2010, I drove to Manzanita, Oregon to spread my dad's ashes along with my little brother's ashes. As those of us that remained gathered on the beach to spread the ashes, I noticed two very important things. Number one, you should always check the tide tables and number 2 while i am not a certified person that makes people into ashes i don't know about the process i don't know what might change things or what might alter the end results i did notice that as we spread my dad's ashes and my brother's ashes cremated a year apart related they were very different my brother's ashes were light and fluffy and white and beautiful and my Dad's ashes looked like the bottom of a chain smoker's ashtray. There was only one thing I could think. It's the difference between being once baked and twice baked. Because you see, after you die in a house fire, and they bring in the cadaver dogs, and they find your body, and they do DNA on your jawbone to identify you, and they take your body to the mortuary, you still have to sign a release that says the pacemaker is not going to explode when they cremate you. So, my dad was twice baked. My brother, who had been in suicide from PTSD from the military, 22 soldiers a day lose their life. My brother had been wrapped in his favorite quilt from when he was a child.
2: Once baked. It's the only difference I can think. More importantly, check the tide tables. It's
4: a little odd to have a moment when you're Lovingly spreading your beloved's ashes in the ocean. Make sure the tide's going out at the right time. I didn't spread all the ashes. I kept some of my dad's ashes and my brother's ashes. My brothers are in a Volkswagen tin, and my dad's are in a tchotchke gun belt. He was a police officer for 20 years. I was able to take some of my dad's ashes and get them put into the ink in a tattoo in memory of him of his badge. They were able to take the ashes and put them into the ink and put them into the tattoo. And the artist that did it for me had been in EMT and had worked in the police field, and he knew the story, and he was more than willing to do it for me. And so I got a tattoo in honor of my dad with my dad's ashes in it. And here's a little fun fact about the state patrol. If you didn't know, When an officer dies, they do not retire their badge number
2: unless they're killed in the line of duty. I did not know that. It's been a minute.
4: Fires really impacted my life in so many ways. I lost my dad at 30 and had to learn to live without a dad. But I was also given the opportunity to buy a house, to change jobs, to take my kids on vacation and spend time with them and be a field trip mom. I was able to buy art, support friends' Kickstarters. I was able to buy the good furniture that you don't have to assemble yourself. It's taken me a lot of years. At 40, I think I'm really just coming to terms with it. I've lost family to fire, actual fire. I've lost relationships to emotional fires. I've lost friendships to temper fires. I was fired last year from my job. But I also gained perseverance and endurance and strength and lasting friendships. I learned how to grow and how to adapt and how to be strong and resilient. Fire took away from me, but it also gave to me. Gave me a permanent tattoo with a reassigned badge number.
0: Uh, I'm a high school teacher, so I'm thinking if a student ever asks me what the term dark humor means, I might just show them that video. (laughs) That was great. Uh, Okay, our last storyteller tonight uh, has the peculiar honor, uh, I mean, I've heard a lot of auditions, I've heard a lot of stories, and Ross's was the first one that ever uh, made me shed a tear. It's a very touching, very emotional story, and it's a great way uh, to bring our night to a close. So please welcome Ross Carper.
5: They try not to make it a habit of texting and driving, but uh, given the news I was expecting to receive that morning, uh, I decided that I could make an ex- exception and ride dirty, as the rapper T.I. would say. So I mashed that I'm not driving button, lying brazenly to Siri, and kept my phone open uh, on my lap as I drove. I had just dropped off my three daughters, 10, uh, 5, and 2 at the time, uh, at school and with my parents, respectively, and I was on my way from the paint store and the cleaning supplies store down to this dingy old restaurant building that was an Arctic Circle, and then it was a Sushiyama, and now we were somehow trying to make this terrible old restaurant into something new. September of twenty nineteen was the busiest, probably one of the busiest times of my life. I was still operating a breakfast food truck um, on the weekends. I had my day job at the Compass Breakfast Wagon, or my day job, that was the food truck. My day job was at First Presbyterian Church. Uh, and across the street from the church, we were forming this new nonprofit restaurant uh, called Feast World Kitchen. Uh, friends and neighbors and former refugees and immigrants from all over the world were coming together to form this thing as a place of empowerment, of celebration, a place where people could share their uh, culture and make a bunch of extra money doing it, uh, to be woven into the community with radical hospitality, love, and fellowship around the table. So that, that was the idea of what we were starting. But in September 2019, we're in the we're in the middle of this fund, uh, you know, this crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo, and so we're me and my friend Daniel Todd, uh, who also owned a little food business, in Curry, in the neighborhood on the Lower South Hill. There, um, we're just going in there every day, you know, just trying to get this place less grimy because we're scheduled to have this champagne toast at the end of the month with some of our biggest, fanciest donors uh, to start this thing. And this place looks, it, it was in rough shape. So I'm driving down to Feast World Kitchen, but my mind isn't on that project. My mind is on the text that I'm waiting to receive. You see, as an almost 40-year-old married couple, my wife Autumn and I were in the midst of a good old-fashioned pregnancy scare. Uh, as I mentioned, we have three wonderful, beautiful girls. Uh, and Autumn had broken the news to me the day before or a couple of days before, that, you know, when we thought we were okay, maybe we weren't okay. And then the day before that, the day before I was driving, uh, riding dirty, um, she, had set, she had texted me and said, not pregnant, you know. But then later that night she said, well, maybe that was a false alarm. Maybe I didn't start my period. And so <laughs> I was waiting to hear the news because she had bought a pregnancy test on the way to her work. As a high school teacher, when I got the picture, uh, it just was a picture of a pregnancy test, and they don't mess around anymore. It's not like one line or two lines plus or minus. Uh, it's just the word "pregnant." Um, so they've—I think they got sick of people calling and asking, "Is this really no pregnant?" Is what it said. So I think I was at the stoplight by the five-mile zips, uh, and so when I saw that, I pulled in. Uh, to the parking lot of that Sips, and the first call I made wasn't to my wife because I knew. um, I didn't want to talk to her yet. I called my friend Landon. Um, Every friend group needs a Landon. He's sort of the barber slash backcountry guide slash uh, counselor slash event planner uh, in our friend group. And I just, he, he let me talk. And vent honestly, because instead of all the other times we've gotten pregnant, uh, this was not an oh joy moment, this was more of an oh shit moment. Because I, I was in the, I was with other uh people launching this new thing, we were past the baby stage. Our two year old had just started sitting on the toilet, she still, uh, a year and a half later, does not have a perfect record. But... We were past the stage. We were ready to move forward with our lives, our careers, our family, our our girls. Uh, and I was venting to my friend Landon. See, I want to call Autumn first because I, I didn't want the first conversation about this person, this baby, this pregnancy, to be a negative one. And that's what I was feeling. Because we had had two miscarriages before. And we had three beautiful daughters. And what, no matter what happened, whether this worked out or didn't, I didn't want to have this negative uh, conversation be the first thing. But it is the thing I remember about that time. My question to myself was, how am I going to help start this thing, uh, Feast World Kitchen? How am I going to pour myself into this while also trying to be a good dad to a new baby? unexpectedly joining our family? That was my question then. A couple weeks later, we were toasting champagne. Our Indiegogo campaign had gone amazing. The community was saying yes to Feast World Kitchen. The chefs, potential chefs, the people involved, donors, volunteers, coming out of the woodwork to help us start transforming this place. Uh, Like my daughter's potty training, we're still in the process of transforming that place. But it was a yes a couple of a, a few weeks later, after that champagne toast event uh my family my little family and I were gathered at my folks' house around an envelope. We had asked the doctor's office uh to put uh, the sex of our child in an envelope so that we could have a little reveal party without any you know too much fanfare, Um, but when we opened that envelope and it said, it's a boy, it caught me by surprise. It caught all of us by surprise. Uh, Most of all, it caught our three little daughters by surprise. Autumn's folks uh, FaceTiming in caught them by surprise. And something about that, and and it wasn't just the news itself, because I am a proud girl dad. In fact, a lot of the folks that I work with at Feast, um, you know, people from other other places in the world, they would ask me a lot. I don't, and I don't know if it's a cultural thing, but would ask me, "Okay, are you trying for a boy?" You know, "Okay, so next one will be a boy." (laughs) Uh, I got this a lot, Um, (laughs) but no, we weren't trying for anything, and I was in love with my little girls. I said, "I work at a church. I'm a, a person of faith, but I'm also a person of doubt." And I, the thing I've studied more than anything in my life is the problem of evil, of suffering, of pain. Um, The topics that we've been focused on tonight in some ways. But also when I look in each one of my three girls' eyes, there's a problem of beauty. There's a problem of how can this be real that I get to be their dad. So it wasn't just the news, but over the winter we were growing this sense of yes. The community had said yes to Feast World Kitchen, and and my family and I, in my, in our, in our interior life, started saying yes to this new, unexpected journey. See, when, when the opportunity came up for this building to be transformed into Feast, I thought to myself, yeah, you know, someone should really do that. Uh, you know, I partnered with World Relief in my work at First Press, and, and done a lot with former refugees and immigrants, and I, I just thought, man, there's these cool incubator spaces in bigger cities where, you know, former refugees cook their food and they sell it to the community and they do catering jobs. You know, someone should do that, but I don't have time for that. But then slowly and surely, it turns into a yes. It turns into collaborations and neighbors and the neighborhood and, and people from all different faiths and walks of life or no faith coming together, bringing their gifts to the table to create something new. And it became a yes. Throughout that winter, autumn, and I would look at each other with with a, just shaking our head with a smile, like "Is this really happening? This is an unexpected but joyful twist." And you know what? We're just gonna figure it out. You know, you just one day at a time, you figure it out. It was almost like this this like, and and in my wife, I almost saw kind of one of these biblical archetypes of, like, uh, Sarah or Elizabeth, I think, and, uh, pe- you know, maybe an older woman who didn't expect to get pregnant, or Mary, a younger woman who didn't expect to get pregnant. But holding this in her heart as this joyful journey of, okay, I guess this is happening. That was our winter. We slowly started doing catering events with feasts. We got our kitchen permitted, um, You know we had been catering through the church kitchen across the street, but now we had our own kitchen ready to go. The rest of the place is still a wreck, but we could cook in there. We could do catering. We're thinking about, hey, what? What if we started doing some takeout nights? And we were planning kind of the big thing that would help really push this over the edge—a big fancy schmancy event, the Feast World Kitchen Local Meets Global Gala, which would take place on March sixth. 2020. This would pair local celebrity chefs with our former refugee and immigrant chefs. They would come together, cook together, share a course, share stories, video pieces, international music and dancing. Uh, This was going to be a wonderful event. And I was scared because it's the biggest event that I've ever been a part of planning. When March 6th came, I was nowhere to be found at that event. Here's why. In the early morning hours of March 5th, I was awoken to my wife talking to the nurse hotline on the phone and then heading down to Sacred Heart while I stayed back with our kids. And then her calling me from Sacred Heart to say, they're not hearing a heartbeat on the ultrasound. See, she had, we were in the third trimester now and she had gone in because she wasn't feeling the kicks that she normally felt that night. And she knew something was wrong. And she said, well, the, the ultrasound tech isn't sure and maybe the, he said maybe the placenta is in the way, so they're going to do another check. So I'll call you back when they check. And I Google third trimester can't hear heartbeat, ultrasound. And as I'm typing these
2: words, I know. And I knew in Autumn's voice, Freddie was gone. And he was. And so the next couple of days were not spent
5: running around planning for this big, fancy event. My neighbors took care of that. My family, my friends. None of my blood relatives, but my my friends and family from around the world and around the neighborhood took that thing and carried it. Because that was the time when, on March 5th, we delivered, Autumn delivered, Freddie.
2: And we got 40 hours to say hello and to say goodbye. To hold him.
5: To kiss him. To caress his body for me to feel his little,
2: long, skinny, flat feet that were just like mine. This was a day that I will never refer to as the worst day of my life because it's the only day I got with my son. The event, you know, went off without a hitch, people were so
5: excited. Uh, Ella, who you heard from earlier, was, uh, um, in, our, in our honor. We were friends and was there dancing and drinking and celebrating what was, what was being born into the world even as we were experiencing this death. The pregnancy had gone perfectly up until it wasn't. My oldest daughter, uh, the girls got to come down to the hospital. And I'm so glad we did that. Back in the 1950s, they would rush the baby and, you know, forget about it, no, just try it. But no, now with, with a stillbirth, they give moms and families time, and I'm so thankful for that. My oldest daughter, Caroline, our sweet, brilliant, quiet, hilarious redhead, and I were walking the halls at Sacred Heart, and we ducked into the gift shop. And sooner or later, she comes up to me with this little heating pack. It's one of those things filled with rice that you can warm up in the microwave and put on your neck if you're sore. And it was a fox. And this little fox uh was something that Caroline said, hey, we should get this for mom. And of course, we bought it uh, because foxes were going to be the theme of Freddie's nursery.
2: Uh, it was all stuffed foxes. And my gosh, have we gotten a lot of stuffed foxes since then.
5: But we bought this thing, and we're up in the room showing it to Mom, and Caroline gives it to Autumn. And, and over the last couple of days, I've been look, looking into you know stillbirth and, and how people cope and things. And we had heard about these little uh, stuffed animals that you can get that are the same weight as your baby, so that when your arms are aching to hold your child, Uh, You can hold something that at least kind of has the same heft as your baby did, because it's the most unnatural thing in the world to leave a room that has your baby in it and go home. We're in a maternity room, and so, you know, I kind of, on a whim, said, hey, let's weigh this thing. And Caroline and I carry it over there carefully and put it on this digital scale, and before I... Before we even measured it, I knew. And sure enough, this little fox weighed exactly the same pounds and ounces as our boy, Freddy. And as much as that moment was so good for our 10-year-old, Caroline, it sort of made me want to shake my fist at the heavens and say, Hey, why why, why do you wink at us with a stuffed animal, but you can't give us our
2: boy?" That's that questioning, that doubting that is always with me.
5: And the question that I had started with is, how can I, how can I be a part of launching this nonprofit and also welcome a baby into the family? Six months later, the question was, how do I have any,
2: anything in me to help start this thing? Uh, because we didn't welcome Freddie into our
5: The Whatever weight I felt like I would be carrying with a new child
2: has been replaced with this carrying of loss for our family. How do you continue on having held your dead baby in your arms? I don't have a neat and tidy answer for that question at all. And a year has just passed since Freddie's birthday and death day. Early spring feels weird right now. It feels traumatic. March
5: 2020 uh, will never have the same meaning for us that it does for everyone else.
2: But so many families have lost people unexpectedly since then.
5: And our family just started our hunker-down quarantine one week
2: before the rest of the world started. How do you go on after holding your dead baby?
5: For us, and it's just maybe, and just sometimes, but it's true, is that while we're holding that grief and carrying that loss, we are being held by our family by our
2: friends by the team that is run, is helping launch Eastworld Kitchen still
5: the first weekend in april we started doing takeout and we started with one day a week two days three days four days now there's 5 days a week of takeout going in our building with immigrants and former refugees and they have made wonderful food and they've made hundreds of thousands of dollars in income for their family, and they've made connections, weaving them into the community since then. And I can't wait till we can really gather in person instead of just a transactional takeout. How do you move on having held your, your baby and not taking him home? Well, we feel like we're held by our family, by our friends, and by that love that we call God that holds us even when we're carrying something heavy. Thank you.
0: Thanks again to the storytellers. I'm always so honored. Yeah. Uh, If you want to hear more, about what we're doing and you want to be apprised of these events, uh, you can find us at pivotspokane.com. You can find us at pivotspokane at gmail.com. You can get on our mailing list. Thanks for coming. I'll see you next time. Good night.